Death is a song. I've known its rhythm since birth, but still I flinch from it. The drapes of the first floor window twitch. Moments later, the door to my father's townhouse opens, and Stevens, my father's valet, is quick to bridge the distance between us. He's aged in the months since I saw him last, and shrugs off his stoop as though it's an unwelcome weight. Nicholas, he says gently, his fingers brushing against the black mourning band that circles his arm. He's gone? Stevens's somber expression steals my hope, and I let my valise fall to the ground. It was he who had written to me of Francis's illness from camp fever. The roads from Oxford were flooded. If not, I would have arrived before. The delay was a kindness, he murmurs. You would not have known him. He shivers and pulls at his servant's livery. He's cold, and I am tired from a day's travel, yet neither of us suggests we retreat indoors. This is what death is, stilted greetings and pleasantries that do little to hide the truth. Francis is dead. My brother is dead. He grimaces and shepherds me past the silver horseshoe nailed to the threshold, counter magic believed to prevent witches from entering. Such sights were rare when King Charles still resided in London. Most of England's witches were culled during the reign of his father, King James. War has made people desperate, and the newsbooks are filled with accounts of people selling their souls to the devil for magic. Inside, the reflected surfaces of the hallway are draped in black silk. When I left for Oxford last year to continue my studies, I paid no thought of ever returning. King Charles had abandoned London following a failed attempt to arrest his most vocal critics in the House of Commons for high treason. In the three years that have passed under his command, his headquarters in the city of Oxford have become a palatial ruin, overrun with sewage, soldiers, courtiers, and death. Despite this, I have not missed home. Yet here I am, caught under its shade. I straighten up at the nudged reminder to stand tall in a place where I've spent most of my life shrinking into the shadows. Satisfied, Stevens ascends the winding staircase. A sweet, cloying scent in the air sticks to me like honey and pulls me towards the parlor. Father and his wife, Mrs. Sophie Pierce, are seated across from each other, heads bowed towards his greatest achievement, who now lies between them. I step closer to my brother, forever seventeen, crowned with hyacinths and enthroned in a coffin of dark elm. The air is thick with his decay, despite the cold that bites at my skin like an icy draught. I lift my head and blink into the light when my father acknowledges my presence with a brief glance. You're here. And that's my stepmother. And I take a cautious step towards her. Bereavement has rattled her rigid poise and prematurely silvered tendrils of her brown hair. Madam, I'm sorry for your loss. And the others, the infants who died too early for father to allow them names. You are kind, she says, her tremble a hint at the resentment she always felt for having to raise me alongside her legitimate son. Father locks eyes with me again. I will speak with you privately. 
He turns to his wife, who clasps her hands and presses her head to Francis's coffin. Our son needs spells, not vigils, he snaps. It is said that a person's soul departs in pieces upon their death. Witches were believed to trap what remained and revive the deceased with a whispered enchantment through a loop of thread and a sealed knot. The late King Charles had seen to it that such arts are now a hanging offence, leaving the bereaved only with their prayers for comfort. A burning look, but father does not recoil from it. Defeated, Sophie stands, and from underneath her dark petticoats, the rosettes on her shoes are a pink, unhealed wound. He is gone, says father, once we are alone, and wonders at both me and my dead brother. We were only six months apart, and despite having only our father's blood in common, we were close enough in looks to pass for twins. My presence is an unwelcome reminder. I am sorry. His clenched, curled fists are a soft warning. He has never looked to me for anything, not even comfort. He runs his hand through thinning grey hair. His treachery was a costly thing, his death more so. I look upon my brother, unwilling to believe that father is still angry over the money he paid for Parliament to overlook Francis running away to join the Royalist army. When I raise my eyes, Father's grimace has turned into a sneer. To ground myself, I press my boots against the Turkish carpet. My son has died a soldier's death, while you have wasted your time writing plays. How easily the dead are forgiven. Words are not to be scorned. Battles have been fought over them. I say, a pointed reminder of the brutal resistance King Charles faced when he tried to force a revised prayer book on his Scottish subjects. It is not words they fight over, he argues, and we both reach for a respite from the loss that lies between us. The war isn't about money, I retort before he can repeat his worn criticisms of the king's penchant for illegal taxes. Nor is it about the king overstepping his authority or his failure to further reform the Church of England. It's about power, regardless of the arguments Parliament and King drape over it. His majesty has hoarded more than his fair share, and we are all fighting for a taste of it. You've never fought for anything, he says, a familiar taunt. I am no more than a beggar to him, well-dressed and well-educated, but a beggar nevertheless. I've been offered work, I counter, clenching my fists to calm myself. Doing what? he asks in surprise. Writing. He scoffs. Where? The London playhouses have been shut these past three years. The Queen is not likely to return from France, and the Royalists in Oxford are in want of bread, not entertainment. He folds his arms, and I force myself to elaborate. I tell father of my friendship with Mr. Donnemore Roper, a contemporary of mine at Oxford who's abandoned his studies in favor of devising the Queen's entertainments. He purchased one of my plays and has promised me work at the Royalist Court in France. He sighs. You are like your mother. She too pinned her hopes on pretty words and false promises. I keep my face still to hide my surprise. I know hardly anything of my mother. She died within days of my birth and father has never cared to reveal enough to make her real. 
A flickering memory of Francis causes me to arch my head in the same manner he would have done. Is that how you won her? He laughs, but I know I've unsettled him from the way his eyes bore through me. I met her on my travels and brought her home with me. And? I ask, the yearning creeping through. I married your stepmother a month later. Your mother and I parted ways once she found out. She had a grander role in mind. He shrugs off the memory. Her name? I beg, but he wraps his knuckles against his chair, refusing to be drawn further into the past. My tolerance towards your poetic ambitions was a kindness to her memory, forfeited by your brother's death. He pulls a sealed parchment from his doublet and declares, Everything that was once Francis's is now yours. The parchment is feather light, but my hands tremble from its weight. My legitimacy is marked by father's scrawled signature and Parliament seal. Yet this prize does not elevate me. It is a reluctant gift brought about by my brother's death, but I am slow to let it fall from my hands. Your wife will never let me replace him. Sophie has accustomed herself to the situation, he imparts, and I notice the bite mark on his hand. Father's eyes meet mine, and I recall Sophie's ginger posture with a wince. There will be gossip. People will not accept me. I will show you how to battle your way through, he scoffs. Father had been quick to voice his support of Parliament when the war began. Their encouragement of men from the middling ranks has given him the chance to fashion himself into something new, something regal. He has dubbed himself the Merchant King and will not be checked by anyone. You intend to accept Mr. Roper's offer? I meet his stare and wonder how he can make this offer with the dead laid out between us. What else? And my look of surprise, he continues. I have made you legitimate. What more could you want? Stevens made my life here bearable, but Francis made it home. Without him, it is a tomb, and one I have no wish to be trapped by. I'm sorry, I could not be a better son to you. Your mother, he says, and smiles when I raise my head. Ask me one thing of her, her favorite poem, playwright, her name. He tempts, and in the ensuing silence, he retrieves a quill pen and paper from a nearby cabinet. He scratches something onto the blank parchment and hovers it above Francis's body. Her name, he repeats when I stand to retrieve it, began with a G. His fist is a paperweight, and I settle with tracing the letter's curve with my finger. You will earn the rest in the years it will take you to learn the business. Father's reticence has seen to it that I am unmoored from my past, that I am alone. He wets his lips in anticipation and loosens his grip. But then I catch sight of Francis's coffin, and the shamefulness of it causes me to draw back. You are still minded to a refusal. You have taken my son from me. Now I shall have all of you in return. He commands and tosses another document towards me. It is a letter I wrote to Francis last spring, my words encouraging enough that he slipped away from London to join the King's army. 
taking with him our father's musket and our family's good standing with Parliament. The closest I've been to war is the staged skirmishes and the playhouses. Those exhilarating battle scenes had never been tinged by the loss I feel now. I did not wish for this. I looked to Francis for forgiveness, but his face is immobile. I passed the letter back to Father as though it is a loaded weapon. Men go to war and die, leaving the ones behind to profit from their mistakes. His mouth thins. I paid Mr. Roper to humor your ambitions. My youth has been a backdrop to the violent feud between King and Parliament. But in the face of his revelation, all I can do is stand. You're lying, I say, my voice unsteady. He shakes his head slowly. I wanted you safely occupied. I had an heir already, and I did not want you under his feet. I recall my interactions with Doddermore and the victories I thought so hard won. You have toyed with me my whole life. He shrugs. I pandered to your vanity. I've not told your stepmother that you've killed our son. His words see me seated. Sophie would never forgive me for the loss of Francis. I'm offering you wealth and safety, he finishes. The same thing you promised your wife. His face hardens at the reminder. My stepmother traded away her privilege for my father's wealth, a loss she regrets, no matter that she and her family had done well by it. A devil's bargain you are both trapped by. Better my trap than hers, he counters, and from the lines of his face I see he will not give way. I have made words my profession, but father's betrayal has robbed me of my trade. If he tells Sophie, her family will prevent me from finding another honest way of making a living. I snatch my mother's initial from his hands. One year, and you will also tell me the town where my mother was born. His expression eases. Four years for me to mold you into my replacement, he bargains. After which, you will have my wealth and all I know of your mother to do with as you please. The transformation would leave me too much like him to want to seek out her history. I will not be molded to your likeness, I swear. His scorn is fleeting. Francis bore my name, but you are already much more like myself. To gain an advantage, I too have steered people towards misfortune. <laughs>